Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. How frequently are you quizzed by an anxiety-ridden parent who wants to know how to get their kid into medical school? Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ann Vengarsi, Associate Dean at California Health Sciences University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Van Garcy will tell us much more than admission trends. We will examine the changing curricula of the first two years of medical school. Match day and residencies will be covered. Dr. Van Garcy will even provide tips to physicians interested in holding an administrative post in academia. Prepare to learn insider information from a medical school associate dean. My interview with Dr. Ann Van Garcy is next. My guest today on Sound Practice is Dr. Ann Van Garcy. She is the Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs, Community Engagement, and Population Health at the California Health Science University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Clovis, California where she also serves as Associate Professor of Pediatrics. Dr. Van Garcy is a board-certified pediatrician and practiced in the private sector for 11 years before entering academia. Dr. Van Garcy is also a member of the Board of Directors of the American Association for Physician Leadership. Welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, so pleased that you could, could join us. I'd like to talk about general trends in medical school admissions and what you're seeing from your vantage point as associate dean. Can we talk about demographics of in, incoming students, undergraduate training, these type of things would be helpful for me to know about. Sure, that'd be great. It's a great question. Thanks for asking it. So what we're seeing um, in medical school admissions is um, definitely a trend toward um, more diversity, um, at least at least from our standpoint. That could be partially because we're in California, but but I do see that is a trend kind of nationwide. We're seeing more women um, go into uh, medical school now. Um, a couple years back um, on the um, the MD granting institution side, um, we saw that for the first time ever. Um, uh, there was a higher percentage of, of women matriculating in medical school um, than men. And so that that's a really great trend to see. Um, and additionally, as I mentioned, we're seeing more diversity in general, more, uh, more people of color in underrepresented, um, underrepresented groups in medicine um, coming into medicine um, more and more than before. Um, we're definitely seeing um, the Fauci effect um, to a degree. Um, where more folks in general seem to be interested in medical school um, for probably a variety of reasons, um, but we're definitely seeing seeing it, it kind of an uptick in not only um, um, applicants, but um, in general, also the, the diversity of folks that we are seeing as applicants. And that's really kind of great to see. Absolutely. And with the increase of number of applicants, do you see the same quality of the applicant pool? Yes, actually, the applicant pool um, seems to be increasing in terms of its quality. So, again, we're not completely sure what effect the pandemic has on that. Was that um, folks who were kind of thinking about medicine but never really had had pulled the trigger on it yet took took advantage of this this year off to 
you know, go back and, and, you know, finish some of those prereqs, do some additional things to strengthen their application from previous or, or what exactly that looked like. But, but for our, we're now we're a new, a new school, I will say that. And our second class of students, which we are just wrapping up, finishing um, interviewing for our second class of students, definitely we're seeing the metrics increase over the metrics that we saw for last year. So we're seeing more candidates, but we're also seeing more highly qualified candidates than, than, than last year. And that's a trend that I believe has been nationwide. Well, that sounds like great news for everyone with the possible exception of those applying for admission. Um, so super, what, what other trends are you seeing regarding medical school training? I know that there's been talk about changing science curricula uh, in the first two years of med school to make room for other subjects. Any thoughts on that? Yes, that definitely is a trend. We're seeing a couple, a couple trends in in that in that realm. First off, is we're seeing um, a common trend in many uh, institutions. Um, where they are shortening the pre-medical curriculum from the traditional two years, which was previously how most schools did it, to more of getting that, that pre-clinical science curriculum done in, in more like a year and a half. In our case, we follow the traditional two-year um, basic science curriculum, but because of modern technology and the fact that we're able to do um, gross anatomy from a holographic standpoint, for example, that type of thing has freed up time in the curriculum where we are able to add things like nutrition, like in our case, medical Spanish, um, uh, health system science type of topics. So, so technology both simulation as well as, as augmented reality has enabled many medical schools like ourselves to be able to further condense the science curriculum in terms of student time to be able to offer some additional things, which I think is amazing because I, the reason that we chose to do that here is that A, it fits with our, our osteopathic philosophy of, of treating the whole patient that we really wanted to have nutrition in, involved as, as a part of our curriculum, that that really helps us meet that, that holistic approach. Um, but additionally, it's just a travesty that that previously physicians, myself included, really didn't feel as comfortable as we could addressing things like nutrition and wellness and healthy lifestyles for our patients, aside from just preaching at them, because we know that just doesn't work well. And so we're really thrilled to be able to start to get have these conversations with students starting in the first year of medical school to where they will be more comfortable with these topics when they do get out in private practice. Um, additionally, medical Spanish is another case in point where our particular area where we are um, is 55% um, Latinx, and we really felt like to be able to help our, our, our future physicians be able to meet the needs of their patients, we really needed to have medical Spanish not just as an elective, but as a required part of our curriculum. So we were able to make space for that, again, because of the holographic anatomy and some other technological um, um, things that we had, and, and additionally further the health system science. We all know, all of the physician leaders probably listening to this understand that the massive complexity of our healthcare system is such that it's really too late if we start teaching students about that when they've graduated and gone out into residency and our residents. It's, it's really tough to combine everything we have to teach them during residency to get them ready for practice and teach them all about the health system all at the same time. So we really wanted to start teaching students about the complexity of our healthcare system starting in the first year. Um, and a lot of schools are following this trend, especially with the new AAMC AMA uh, health system science curriculum that has come out that enables schools to be able to have the resource of knowing what to put in there in their curriculum. And then it's a matter of finding the space 
in the curriculum to put that information. And so um, it's definitely a trend that, that schools are moving to. And I think that's that's critical. And, and so I'm, I'm very happy to see it. Along the same line, we've heard of the need for more training on subjects such as the business of medicine. Um, any thoughts along along those lines or or empathy training is another topic that I've heard uh, brought up as needing to be added to the curricula. Uh, any any thoughts there? Yeah, uh, the business of medicine definitely is kind of in that field of health system science that we talked about a little bit before. Um, it's a little bit more macro and a little bit less micro. It's it's really more things like uh, the complexity of the healthcare system, social determinants of health, quality improvement. Um, uh, that type of thing. But there certainly is space within that as well to talk about things like payers and, um, you know, CMS and Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, all of that type of thing. Um, we're planning on addressing some of those more specifics about the actual business of, you know, running a practice, coding, seeing patients, all of that kind of as we prepare students to get a little bit closer to third year um, when when our clinical rotations will start is when we're planning on addressing that type of thing. Um, and I think a lot of schools kind of are trying to find where to fit that piece because we recognize that the the milieu of medicine has changed. When, when I first went into private practice, um, which was in the early 2000s, um, about two thirds of physicians were uh, employed in their own practice, and about a third were employed in a hospital system or in an owned practice. That has now flipped, where now it's more that two-thirds of physicians are employed and only about a third of physicians have their own practice. And so, therefore, changing what that business of medicine piece looks like has changed. Um, it's It's a lot less in terms of how do you run your own practice and a lot more of how do you practice within a larger system and and the the parameters that are put upon the physician in, in that type of setting. So, so that's kind of changed a little bit where that, that may lie. So I think a lot of schools are looking at putting that, you know, where exactly in the curriculum do they put that? So I think it's a good question that's being asked. Um, the interpersonal communication and empathy training is a really interesting point that's very timely that you bring that up. Now that we have heard that both the NBME and the NBOME have both moved the previous clinical skills piece of the board certification examination, which was the the step two CS and the level two um, PE, which was the performance-based part of boards where uh, students previously had to interview a number of standardized patients and were were scored on that. Now that has in both both instances gone away. Um, uh, Both the NBME and the NBOME have canceled that exam, at least for the time being. We're not sure when it's going to be reinstituted. now that that has gone, it really presents us with a phenomenal um, opportunity that we didn't have before. Um, a lot of medical schools were frustrated and felt constrained by the logistics of that test. That test had a given amount of time for the students. The students had a certain amount of minutes to interact with the standardized patient and then another certain amount of minutes to, to write their note. And it, and it was very rigid. So in order to, and it was such a high stakes exam that in order to maximize the chance of students being able to pass that exam, clinical skills were kind of taught toward that end. So, so it was very artificial that we would, we would allot students a certain amount of time with their standardized patient and then a certain amount of time to, to write their note because we were again preparing them for this exam. 
And I personally feel like some of that empathy and some of that really true good communication went by the wayside because we were teaching them to almost be robots to make sure they got their their HPI and their past medical history and past family history and social history and the ROS and all of that done very regimented, very quickly because they had this artificial time constraint. And so while yes, we do all have time constraints in in practice, of course we do. Um, It's not quite as rigid as 14 minutes in the room, nine minutes to write your note, which is how we ended up teaching them clinical skills. And I think that was a travesty. So I think the fact that those exams went away opens up the possibility that we can concentrate a little bit more on the empathy, empathy and communication skills at the beginning, recognizing that we all know as we get out in practice, we all end up kind of shortening what we do because we get better, we get faster, we get more efficient, and we kind of shorten how we do our interactions with patients. But it's really tough to shorten it when you didn't learn long to begin with. And now that we're able to take the time to actually teach the students the long way, I think it's spectacular. What well, that's very positive uh, point of view, and I, I like that. I'm interested with the rising quality of medical school uh, applicant pool, if there's still some students that start medical school and and drop out, is there some degree of of attrition and what that attrition is attributable to? That's a great question. Um, And you know, this this has been um, a data point that's been fairly stable um, over the past several years. Um, It's about 3% nationwide is the attrition rate to drop out of medical school. Um, A lot of factors play a part in it. Um, What I have found um, traditionally in my experience um, with this, I was fairly heavily involved um, with this um, at the medical school that I was at previously. Um, It's actually a lot less academia and a lot more life um, is what it tends to be. Um, It's a lot more life things kind of get in the way, Um, whether it's, um, you know, a a, a substantial death in the family or sometimes a series of deaths in the family, Um, whether it's, you know, a serious illness of a spouse, a child, a parent, um, whatever, um, of the student themselves. It tends to be more that life events tend to end up interfering um, as opposed to the student just wasn't cut out um, for medical school in the beginning. It's so rigorous to get accepted into medical school and the and the the pre-matriculation curriculum that students have to go through and is so heavy in the sciences that really the majority, the vast, vast majority of students that end up matriculating in medical schools academically can perform. That's not a concern. It's all of the other things that tend to get in the way. The life things I mentioned, um, mental health issues, um, that type of thing are, are what really tend to end up um, in, interfering and leading to those students that aren't able to um, to continue and end up having a, a attrition from medical school. Um, mental health cannot be discounted. Um, we all know um, we unfortunately lose about 400 physicians a year um, to suicide. And we recognize in medical education that the seeds of physician wellness or unwellness are sown in medical school. And so medical school ever more attuned to that and intent on figuring out how can we really incorporate student wellness into what we're having them do because we know what they're so we're sowing the seeds for in the future down the road and so I also think that the wellness or lack of wellness and mental health concerns are also a big factor in student nutrition that takes place. Well said from the, at the time we're recording this match day was just a few uh, weeks ago uh, 
this may be out of your area of expertise, but do you have an opinion on on match? It, it seems that the process, at least from my outsider point of view, is convoluted and that it turns out a lot of disappointed um, medical students. What do you That's think? a great question. That's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, and actually, luckily, I, ha- I have been able to be involved um, in the match um, fairly substantially since um, since a, just for the past six years or so. Um, I've, I've been a, a residency match advisor um, for students um, at the medical school I was at before, and then medical school where I'm I'm at now. We've been doing residency match advising. So so you're right. There has been a trend where we have been seeing an increasing number of of graduates uh, not match um, every year. I would put a qualification on that, on that, however, if we look at the, at the numbers of, of um, applicants, um, if you include um, United States um, educated, so US MD and DO graduates, there actually are enough residency spots for all of them. There's actually a surplus. Um, when we look at the, the addition of, uh, of, international graduates, that's where then if that total number of U.S. and international graduates, then yes, there aren't enough residency spots for for all of those graduates together. The process itself is is as fair as it can be in my estimation, given the complexity of what has to happen. Prior to the match and the way it worked with with the the match algorithm, which is a very complex um, mathematical algorithm, which received quite a lot of accolades and awards in terms of the complexity of the math in the algorithm. It's actually an award-winning algorithm. Um, Prior to that, it was very kind of um, (laughs) loosey-goosey how the match used to work, where literally it was just a a prospective graduate, a, a student who was a senior medical student would somehow either through a connection or through introduction or somehow would, would become aware of a program and meet with the program and apply to the program and get offered a job kind of like the way you get a regular job where you apply and you get offered a spot. And so it really was a whole lot of the way a lot of uh, jobs end up sometimes being kind of who you know. And, and it was very not terribly equitable um, such that those students that had the connections and the students that had the opportunities to, to meet program directors and that sort of thing would be much more successful in, in acquiring those spots. So the, the, the match um, in the trademarked match was established in, in an attempt to A, simplify it for, for programs and, and uh, applicants alike, but also to, to inject some equity into it. So it's not really who you know. Um, it's not really what kind of, you know, a privileged background you come from. It's really more giving all applicants an equal playing field in terms of getting into the system, meeting the programs, finding out about the programs and all that sort of thing. Um, so I think the match itself actually is as good and as fair as it can be. The challenge and the issue that leads to a lot of residents not being able to, or applicants being able to match is actually the bottleneck of the lack of residency spots growth. Um, all residency spots are capped. Um, we're capped in the 1997 um, Balanced Budget Act, where the numbers of available residency spots that are funded um, via CMS was capped at 1997 levels, which doesn't represent remotely where we are right now. Um, the, the aging population has 
skyrocketed as the baby boomers are getting older. So the number of physicians that we were graduating from residency programs in 1997 does not meet our needs now in, in 2021. And it will take legislation changed by Congress to change that because it was a, con a congressional act. So that's going to need to be changed for that by Congress in order for that to be addressed. And it's and it's been the, the AMA and all of the the double AMC and the ACOM, all of all of the major medical education players are definitely advocating for this um, at, at the at the national level because that's what's going to need to happen in order to meet the needs of. Our, our burgeoning aging population for physicians moving forward, the cap on the residency funding by CMS is gonna need to be addressed and looked at in order to sort of meet that need. So to me, the issue isn't the match, the issue is GME spots. A quarter of a century, it's remained the same. And that is that my understanding of what you've just said? Yes, sir. Um, there have been some additional funding streams that have come in. There, there are now through teaching health centers, which is, um, uh, money from HRSA that goes to federally qualified health centers to have residency programs. There are some alternate streams of funding now that are additional ways to get residents funded, but the main way that the majority of residents are funded in the United States is through CMS. Yes, that is capped at 1997 numbers. Well, it seems like some uh, attention needs to be given to the supply side of the equation and not all to the demand side. Um, Tell me, one of the things that is, we've certainly seen in, in that same time period is the growth of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and perhaps that is a reaction to the, to the great need and the lack of, of supply of, of, of physicians. Is there coordination between medical schools and schools of nursing, so forth, uh, to look at health needs in a global sense? Absolutely. That's another great question. Um, and, and thank you for asking that. Yeah, it's actually an accreditation requirement, um, both by um, the two, there's two main accreditors of medical schools in the United States. There is the LCME, which accredits um, MD granting institutions, and there is the COCA, um, who accredits DO granting institutions. Both of those accreditors um, require interprofessional education to be incorporated in the undergraduate medical, medical education arena. So that is in years one through four of medical school, it is required by both the accreditors that the IPE um, is incorporated. And so therefore it's something that's on all of our minds. Um, as a new school, um, which I mentioned, um, we were very intentional about building IPE into our curriculum in all four years. Um, so it, it's, and it's, and it's done different ways. So for some schools where they have multiple colleges, multiple health science colleges in their university, it's a little bit easier for them. They, they may just coordinate with their own nursing school because they have one, or they may just coordinate with their own PA program because they have one. Um, for example, we have a pharmacy school here. So a lot of our IPE is, is with pharmacy students, but because we, re we recognize that physicians interact with all sorts of different healthcare providers, not just pharmacists, we are reaching out to other universities in our area, to nursing schools, to um, uh, dietetics programs, to um, just the other day, we had a, an IPE session with a local um, um, healthcare um, interpreter um, program um, where our students interacted with them. Um, we're talking with some, some um, nursing programs locally, as I mentioned, some PA programs, that sort of thing, to get our students to interact because we recognize medicine is now a team sport. And therefore, it's, it's incumbent upon our students to learn how to interact with those different healthcare professionals before they get out onto their clerkship in the, in the third year. 
Dr. Mangarsi, our audience today is made up primarily of physician leaders and healthcare executives, uh, some of whom may be interested in administrative uh, positions in academia. Do you have any recommendations uh, for someone interested in moving into an administrative position in an academic institution? Thank you for asking. I sure do. Um, Much like many things, if not most things in medicine, um, the leadership of of medical schools has changed as well. And and the path to that has changed changed as well. Traditionally, if we go back a couple decades, it was viewed as the the three-legged stool. And it is still kind of talked about the, the, the triad of leadership, clinical excellence, and uh, academic rigor. So you wanted uh, um, someone with leadership who was clinically excellent and someone who had done a lot of research. It, it was kind of uh, traditionally referred to as the triple threat, that, it, that you wanted to have a triple threat dean that had all three of the, the legs of the stool. We recognize now that those are harder and harder to, to, to find an, an individual who is excellent necessarily in all three of those things. And also recommend re- recognizing that leadership is perhaps, some would argue, the most important leg of, of those stools. Um, so I, I, would, I would encourage folks who are interested in it to pursue, pursue leadership opportunities wherever they find them. Um, start to get involved in education. Um, it's very, very challenging and not terribly likely to happen for folks to say they wanted to make the leap from being a CMO of a large institution to being the dean of. That's not real likely to happen unless you are fairly heavily involved in academia um, going into it, because there's a, even a dean who's not involved heavily in the curriculum still needs to know a lot of things about curriculum, about assessment, in addition to knowing things about leadership, um, about finance, um, which a lot of the, the decision leaders listening to this are um, uh, because they're, they're so well-versed in, in a lot of those leadership topics. Um, but I would say don't discount non-traditional paths. Um, my own path into academia and then into academic leadership was not a direct, straightforward, traditional kind of path. And so I would say don't rule out circuitous routes. Um, if you're interested in medical education, call your local medical school, See if, if they have any particular needs. What are they interested in? Are they interested in maybe you presenting some courses on the business of medicine or on healthcare leadership or on those types of things? Because some of those topics are somewhat challenging for us sometimes to find folks to, to teach on that. So get involved as best you can. Partner with various different medical schools for rotation spots. Um, all medical schools are definitely looking to increase their, their rotation spots and the variety and types of rotation spots that they offer to their third and fourth year students. It's another great place to kind of get involved, get involved with students at the third and fourth year level, get involved with students in terms of doing residency advising, um, that type of thing. Um, community involvement in medical schools is increasing. It's a lot less of medical schools being these siloed ivory towers that don't interact a lot with the community. More and more medical schools, in addition to having rotations in their big shiny hospital next to their big shiny medical school, since there are now more and more community-based medical schools, and there are medical schools that don't have big shiny hospitals next to their big shiny medical school, they're having more and more community-type rotations and that types of thing. So get involved there where you can. Um, 
we, most of us in medical education love to show off what we're doing. We love to talk about what we're doing. Um, if a physician leader, a CMO of something um, approached me and said, Hey, I want to come hear about what you're doing at your medical school. I'd be like, great, come on over. Let's give it to her. Let's talk about it. Cause we, we like talking with, with docs out in the real world that are doing the things. And our students equally love talking with docs out in the real world, doing all of the things. Um, I'll give a perfect example. I have a, um, I'm the co-course director for the health system science course that I mentioned um, earlier that we deliver. I invited um, four of our local CMOs of um, fairly qualified health centers here in our area to come kind of team teach some of the sessions with us. And so we have a full-time faculty member that teaches each of the sessions, but we also have these, these um, CMOs who have, or uh, clinical preceptor faculty come and, and help team teach. And they give these real world scenarios for what, how they have approached these various different health system science type of challenges to our students. And I will tell you, it is the most popular part of any of the sessions. The students love hearing from the CMOs about what happens in the real world and, and how they've handled various different things. And it, they just, they just love it. I think it's partly because a lot of students, I think, haven't really met a lot of physician leaders outside of academia. Sure, they've met the dean, they've met the associate deans, they've met the assistant deans, they've met the department chairs. They haven't really met CMOs and they haven't really met physicians in leadership positions outside of academics. And they think it's the coolest thing ever. I don't know if it's because they never considered it or they just, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's cool. They really enjoy seeing that. And so that need and that interest is out there. Just go ask. Well, that is some some great advice. My guest today has been Dr. Ann Van Garcy. Dr. Van Garcy, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thank you, Mike, for having me. It was really fun. I enjoyed it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Few would argue that the Fauci effect upon medical school applications is a bad thing. With increases in both quantity and quality of applicants, the future of the medical profession seems in good hands. Dr. Van Garcy's discussion of our nation's residency program, however, is a cause for concern. With so much writing upon selection and education of physicians, it is appropriate to give the subject full attention. Many thanks to Dr. Ann Van Garcy for joining me on Sound Practice. I hope that you have enjoyed her interview. Thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making sound practice possible. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man Robin went to Kapow.